conversation these days. In a time of heightened political tension, Republicans, that fact of their policy crossing the line does a lot less to restrain their dislike for the other party. These are the sounds that make up our everyday soundscapes. In the news cycle, they're consistently readily available to us and in our personal lives. And of course, at the intersection of these two spheres, which is a border that is becoming increasingly blurred. So we have a constant stream of information in our own pockets. My name is Claire, and I'm a 23-year-old student from Vancouver. I moved to Vancouver five years ago to study dialogue and communication. And in this time, I've tried to make sense of a political spectrum, social life, education, and even city that struggles with intense polarization. For the first time, as a student, I'm not even able to bump into other students in lecture halls or hallways to unpack thoughts on these issues, and I felt this is only farthering polarization of our viewpoints. At home, we are all able to mute, delete, walk away from those who disagree with us. It's become so easy to call out or even cancel those who have viewpoints that we consider to be opponents, rather than calling them in to a dialogue space or conversation. This has really made me wonder what effects this has on youth who are studying and living at this time in Vancouver. I decided to explore this concept by calling up friends, strangers, classmates, and colleagues who all share an interest in working personally or professionally with dialogue. In this episode, I speak to Jocelyn and Sarah. Jocelyn and Sarah are both activists who use social media as a site for communicating their beliefs. They advocate for anti-racism, decolonization, wellness, and so much more. In this podcast, we talk about gatekeeping, woke culture, activism, and decolonizing dialogue spaces. Here's what they had to say about the climate of polarization now. in a really interesting time socially, politically, economically, etc. Just in the scope of the pandemic as well as just what's happening in terms of movements. I think all the, that has kind of culminated, culminated together and we're, we're seeing even more so with social media and news platforms probably more polarization than we've ever seen before. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's something that's pretty tricky to deal with when it comes to polarization something i'm seeing a lot of um is like the influence of social media and how we are interested in like cancel culture and how like a lot of people are interested in social discourse i think in really like exploratory ways but the role of social media and and the internet really just messes people up i think (laughs) Yeah, especially since social media for many of us is our main form of communication during this time. If you don't agree with somebody, then how else are you going to get your opinion out during this time, Um, it seems. I was wondering, do either of you have a personal experience or experience that you've seen kind of play out in regards to polarization and cancel culture, specifically on social media? Um, I mean, I've had some conversations with friends about um, cancel culture in general and whether or not this is something that I think about of whether or not cancel culture um, really works like if it's effective Um, and I think it's really interesting because like the beginning of cancel culture I would say like the root is boycotting and boycotting is definitely a very real form of protest Um, and it's efficient and it works 
Um, but the thing with cancel culture is that I don't think that cancel culture really, really works the way that people want it to. Um, and that stuff gets really tricky because, I mean, you can be well-intentioned and wanting to be like, hey, maybe we should not support this person for very valid reasons. Um, but the way that the internet works and just the role of power in, in terms of who gets polarized, who gets to call the shots on whether or not somebody's actually canceled, it just makes it ineffective. And it's actually just hatred. <laughs> it's just not great. Yeah, I agree with Sarah. I think another point that I would include is that polarization and cancel culture sort of censors people from wanting to share online as a person who wants to be a writer and somebody who's part of several organizations that are forward facing. I find within my group and within myself that I'm often kind of taking the safe choice with the words that I choose to share or um, I try to cover my bases. I try to do my research and that's kind of, it's kind of a shame that I have to feel so um, scared posting online. Um, I mean, it's always good to do your work in a, like an EDI lens, like equity, diversity, inclusion. Um, and it's, it's always important to be doing your research and continually learning. But, but I also think there's um, a point there that makes people feel sort of just hesitant to share and, and hesitant to be involved because of polarization. I really like what you said, Joss, just because I feel like it's I think back, back to like how cancel culture doesn't work. It's very much like the people that like are interested in social discourse and want to get involved. Oftentimes they see cancel culture and they get um, scared and they don't want to speak up and all the stuff that you're describing, like that's a good thing to want to be conscious of your privilege and to make sure that you're educated and doing the right thing. But the thing is, is that again, it doesn't work because the people who need <laughs> to be need that self-check to be like, hey, maybe I should look over what I'm posting or hey, maybe I should look into this some more. Don't internalize cancel culture the same way that you do. Um, that's why there's polarization. That's why it exists. That's why there's that divide. People take one thing and then they go in opposite directions of how they feel about it, how they internalize it. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just not effective. It gets the people who care to feel bad and the people who should care, it just amplifies how much they get to hate <laughs> and say whatever they want. Yeah, I also think another thing to note with cancel culture is that oftentimes people do it in a way that doesn't attach it to a call to action. Um, it's one thing to make somebody accountable or to um, suggest ways for somebody to learn further, but it's another thing, and I think this is part of polarization, where people just want to place blame um, and people just want to place guilt on, onto people without them giving them the opportunity to further learn or grow. I agree. Um, I had a conversation with a friend about cancel culture and accountability, and it came to a point where I needed to ask, like, how do you define accountability, though? Like, what would that even look like? Like, everybody throws around this term of taking accountability and checking your privilege and, like, acting in an equity lens. So that means, like, being aware of your privilege and acting accordingly. But I don't think that people know how to apply that and what that actually looks like. Because if you ask someone, okay, for example, this artist said something and you want to hold them accountable, what does that look like? And that looks different to every single person. Um, and 
similarly with like the issue itself, like if an artist says something that you don't agree with, people are offended by it for multi multiple different reasons. And so that accountability will obviously look different to, depending on who you're asking. And so there's no sense of like collectivism in the way that boycotting worked. It's not community. It's not this like class power type of thing. It's very much about your individual and how you look and how you can make yourself look better by being this person who calls people out on like problematic things. But at the same time, like, you're not realizing that your push for this individualism and hierarchy is actually oppressive and it's doing the worst. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about your personal idea of accountability, whether that be something that's idealistic or not. Also, I'm thinking about this sort of in the framework of, of dialogue. I think that there's this idea of performing um, care that's been very just like a lot of people are, are practicing it, which is really disturbing. Um, like this act of like performing accountability or performing empathy and performing all of like real human emotions. Um, it, it gets really scary to think about like how good people get with manipulating audiences and um, I don't know, getting people to feel things over your faked emotions, I think it's really disturbing. Um, but I will say that, like, for me, ideally, accountability to your question, Claire. Um, the conversation that I was, ha that, that I was having with my friend, um, the context was about somebody who um, is an artist and just, like, said something that people didn't agree with and that um, there, it was cultural appropriation, some racism, um, and like all this kind of stuff. So like bad things. And we were like, hmm, I don't think I want to support this person anymore. Um, and accountability, I think in terms of that, when, when you have power and fame and money like that, I think that accountability, accountability looks financial because I think that in order to you know, take accountability in an equitable way. Again, it's about looking at your privilege and acting accordingly. And so understanding why you have this position in the first place and who you hurt in order to get there. Those are the people that you have to remain accountable to. But like personal accountability, you have to be accountable to yourself and also know that you need to be better for you. And then there's accountability to your community um, which I think is connected to yourself because you are your community. You are the people you surround yourself with. So wanting to be better and to not harm other people, I think is a very like basic and fundamental human, um, human want. Um, it's just, I feel like people just don't know how to act or like act um, authentically when it comes to care anymore. It's all just like, what can I get out of it? And it's just very, it's very sad. Yeah, it almost seems like um, accountability is like pushed onto the PR group. Like they're just like, oh, we need to cover this and, you know, cover our bases as soon as possible. Um, when in reality, I think the apologies are kind of follow-ups to cancel cancel occasions that I've seen on people um, are the ones that are, maybe like they're sort of tripping over their words. I can't think of an exact example, but there, there's something really 
tangible about authenticity. Like you can really tell when somebody has done the work, whether that is with the community or financially or themselves, you can really tell when somebody um, is holding themselves accountable to what they've done. And again, that sort of, it's not, it's ineffable. Like it's hard to describe when that is. Um, and, and it can be messed up really easily. Um, but I do think you know when somebody is being really um, genuine with their responses. And I also think dialogue spaces really help foster that. Um, if we are to kind of go back into talking about polarization and dialogue, I think dialogue spaces are these really unique spaces where nobody discounts um, power and nobody discounts um, how dangerous it can be to bring together a group of people with different lived experiences. And I think the role of a facilitator or conveners in general is to um, let that conversation flow and allow for opinions to be shared, um, but to stop harm if they see it coming or to prevent harm in any way. And I think those are just such unique spaces where you can share your opinion and like be held accountable and hold people accountable in like a really respectful and reciprocal way. I really like that. I think, um, I think you're right. Like this is, this is something that I, um, explore in my own mind <laughs> when I have too much time. Um, but basically like I, I always say that dialogue spaces are really special, but I can't ever pinpoint exactly what it is. Um, it like the people are just different the environment is caring and warm and it just feels like it feels like sacred spaces um and i think that's something that is lacking in terms of like cancel culture and accountability and all this kind of stuff is the fact that like dialogue really does allow you to show up authentically and you're allowed to make mistakes um but within the allowance of making mistakes it's also trust in knowing that you're not doing things to hurt other people or to gain anything from harm or anything like that, which is why I think, um, especially with um, social media and pop culture, like that's really, really hard because you have people who are actively seeking out um, like power and money and there are things to lose and things to gain um, in showing up and having like your identity be tied to like the amount of money and like the amount of resources and opportunities you get, it changes who you are fundamentally. Like it changes your priorities. It changes the way that you show up in spaces. You have a different end goal in mind when you show up somewhere and you're like, Hey, my identity um, has power and meaning um, in a dialogue space. That means that you have power and you have um, autonomy and all of this stuff and you're bringing yourself but in other spaces where you we don't have that authentic trust, it's very much like you can't show up authentically. Like you're there's no there's no space for that. There there hasn't been a space made for that. People don't feel like they can for whatever reason, um, or they choose not to because they know that there'll be um, there'll be consequences if they do, and that has that's and that applies whether or not it's like you're there to offend some people or you're there to not offend some people because um, the way that this world works, it's like, no matter what, someone will be upset. <laughs> and so like, it just depends how, um, how you show up in spaces. And if you're authentically kind of someone who, I don't know, gets on people's toes, stick to that then. 
like, because that's authentic. What are your thoughts on just the best ways to communicate messages about social justice? Is social media the right format? Who should be having these conversations? Should it be one-on-one? Like, there's never a good time to, <laughs> to bring up hard topics, in quotation. Um, I think that, like, something that I really have had to embrace recently is, like, or remind myself when I am put in moments of polarization is, like, hey, you know what? Like, if, if the table is racist and sexist and homophobic, then I don't want a seat there. Like, I, I don't want to appease the status quo and think that, you know, like, oh, if everybody wants to keep the peace and the status quo is inherently colonial and capitalistic, why would I want to be a part of that? That's not something that's not something that I believe in. That's not something that um, aligns with my values. And so, like, being polarized in a scenario where I'm in a room full of colonizers and people who think that harming people is okay, then I don't want to fit in. Um, it's deciding like what spaces actually deserve your energy and what spaces and what kind of people um, you want to have these conversations with when it comes to community building. Um, polarization itself, though, I don't think is something that I like want to shy away from. Um, just because like I'm I'm somebody who posts a lot on social media and. Um, that's something that I've done for, for a really, really long time. Um, but something that I've, I found recently that's been pretty interesting is um, the same people that I went to high school with who made fun of me for being a social justice warrior um, or who polarized me for being somebody who, um, I don't know, brought up conversations that were polarizing. Um, it They are now also seeing that social justice is somewhat trendy nowadays. And so like this performative activism is really getting them. Um, I'm seeing a lot of like, um, like those posts you were talking about, Joss, like those blurbs that just look really pretty, but don't actually say anything. Um, (laughs) They like address the theory, but they don't apply it. They don't critique it. They don't analyze it. There's, it's just there to be pretty. Um, And it's really, it's really frustrating seeing that because on one hand I'm thinking oh like this is one foot in the door there's so much room for more here if you just keep digging like don't stop here don't let this just stop with I don't know a post on your story like keep going um and then on the other hand there's the I can't believe that like this (laughs) this is what um I don't know activism looks like now it's like you you share a post and that's it like you don't have to do anything else. I don't know. It's it's very hard because I feel like at this point with where we are, I don't think it's acceptable to say at least it's something anymore. I don't think that that's I don't think that's acceptable. I think there has to be something more. Yeah, and on that coin, I was about to say something kind of spicy in that um, I love dialogues and I love um, any opportunity for the public to come together where everybody's invited to have a seat at the table and converse. Um, But I might maybe argue or critique that a lot of these events um, don't have a lot of representation. It's sort of like an echo chamber and maybe this is 
like a Vancouver specific thing with a lot of those um, housed initiatives or um, civic engagement organizations. You often see a lot of the same people attending these events. How do you make anti-racist spaces using dialogue? So we separated people by race and now we want to put them back together. (laughs) Um, So how do we put these people into these spaces that we've created for ourselves? Um, which is what honestly equity and like diversion and inclusion looks like in corporate spaces now. It's very much like, okay, how do we get people that we've alienated from this from this space to re-enter the space that we've made unsafe and um, just like terrible, a terrible environment for these people to be in. Um, and like talking about wanting to like open up these spaces and get more diverse opinions and more, I don't know, different faces, I think is a really, really good thing. Because obviously in dialogue, we want as many um, voices and um, opinions and experiences as possible. Um, you know, we wanna, we wanna build community and that involves bringing people in. Um, but I think that it's also that we have to be careful in realizing that like, when you're holding events like housing, um, specifically like in a dialogue way, housing in BC is very colonial And it hurts a lot of people um, to even see like housing implementation and infrastructure, urban city building, like that in and of itself as like a title for one of those event bright things that I've attended. I feel safe in those spaces. I feel excited and passionate because I haven't been directly impacted with the violence that housing and infrastructure has on um, marginalized identities in BC. Um, And I just think that like dialogue spaces need to really understand that like, yes, dialogue is a decolonial um, method of learning and sharing information. Um, But the way that we talk about things and the way we set up these spaces are still under colonial structures. And so, you know, you can't, you can't diversify and (laughs) you can't um, make a racist space just not racist because you want to say it's not. You have to actually do it. I learned so much in this conversation about how to create anti-racist spaces in dialogue. I think that this conversation in particular really grounds how dialogue is able to aid in polarization and the importance of making dialogue anti-racist and decolonizing in doing so, while also really recognizing the limitations in doing this.